0: Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today's episode is going to be a solo cast, and I'm going to talk about the power of life-changing questions. And I hope over the course of this solo cast to help you reimagine your life in terms of powerful questions, and also to go back and ponder how you've gotten to the place where you are uh, today. Again, before jumping into our conversation about questions, I want to offer a couple of uh, reminders to friends. Again, if you find this podcast really helpful, please consider sharing it. If you're interested in finding out a little bit more about me uh, and find all my links to social media as well as my YouTube channel where I have uh, literally hundreds of videos on biblical studies, spiritual formation, centering prayer, uh, tips and tactics on on learning, you can go to my website brianrussellphd.com and you can find all of those things. Also I've started a blog and I'll be adding more Content and articles to there uh, very soon. If you're interested in centering prayer and you'd like to be part of my monthly centering prayer gathering or just receive updates when I publish uh, new things, check out centeringprayerbook.com and you can sign up for updates. Let's go ahead and jump into this conversation on questions uh, that can change our lives. One of my favorite quotations, I learned this from Anthony Robbins. He will often say, and he's written it in his book, Awaken the Giant Within, the quality of your life is a direct reflection of the quality of the questions that you're asking yourself. So what kind of questions do you ask yourself on a regular basis? Again, on this podcast, I've shared my journaling practices in the past where essentially every day I ask and I write about what am I really grateful for? Uh, What's bothering me or what seems out of alignment in my life? What would make today a really good day? Do all that in the morning and then at night I end with a couple of questions. Uh, What went really well today? What were my three wins? And then um, what did I forget that I want to make sure I get to tomorrow? And that right there are five, roughly five questions that can Really transform the way that you interact and do your life. But I want to go deeper than that. As I've thought about where I am in 2022, I'm 53 years old. I've hit a lot of the bigger targets that I had hoped to hit in my life. And I'm imagining now what does the 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 versions of my life and my ministry look like I'm trying to project out. But one of the ways that I've done that is to go back and remember the great questions that opened up the future in a way that allowed me to experience continuous and ongoing growth in my life. Again, that doesn't mean there's no setbacks, but I've realized that the questions that I've either asked myself, or even more importantly, that people have asked me, one of the blessings that I've noticed in my life as I think back over it were the people that were willing to ask me uh, really provocative and interesting questions. And uh, the first question that I can really remember uh, that uh, being asked that was life-changing for me, this would have happened on New Year's Eve of 1984. I'm a uh, a sophomore in high school. I'm a peripheral uh, person around the edge of the youth group. And my youth pastor, Steve Miller, he's still, he's still alive. He's uh, obviously not a youth himself anymore. I think he's in his 60s now. Um, but he asked all of us, and I took this as a personal question, is he said to us that New Year's Eve as we were looking ahead to 1985, uh, he said, why don't you commit to reading the Bible through in a year or at least the New Testament?" I love that I had a youth pastor that was really challenging us around those areas. And of course, at the time, I thought, well, that's a really terrible idea. I don't want to read the Bible. It's hard to understand. I had grown up reading the Bible. Uh, I had my first uh, scriptures when I was in kindergarten. I had, came through Sunday school, and I'd read a good bit of, of the scriptures, even as a young person, because I've always enjoyed reading. But at that point in my life, that didn't seem particularly relevant. But somebody that cared asked me that we're going to notice a pattern. It's people that care about us ask us the deepest questions that you can learn from other people sometimes soon. So I remember as I was got deeper into my sophomore year, I was having a lot of uh, struggles over various things, the, the essentially the adolescent angst. You know, I can't imagine being a teenager in 2022. It seemed pretty crazy back in, what would that, it was 1985. The world has changed a lot and there's a lot of more challenges. But I just remember being... Going through different struggles, doubting my you know, my personal identity, who I was, uh, did I want to be a Christian, all those kind of things. And I just remember one day I was sitting there in my room feeling particularly just bad about myself, struggling with relationships at, at school. And I remember Stevie said, Why don't you read the Bible? And there was my Bible uh, sitting in my room. And uh, in a way, the rest is history. I remember grabbing the book and I'm like, Geez, I wonder where I should start. And I, remember just praying to God, uh, Lord, if you're real, reveal yourself to me through reading this book. And truly, the rest is history. I started reading. I started with Matthew. And what was pretty amazing, our church always did a series of revival, uh, weekly revivals, where we'd bring an outside evangelist in. (laughs) And it just so happened that that spring, during the revival, I went, my parents essentially made my brother and myself go, so I'm there. And uh, that night, uh, the the evangelist was preaching on a section of Matthew that I had just read the day before. And I felt the Lord calling me at that point, and it was one of those at the altar call, felt like I was almost lifted out of the, the pew, found myself at the altar found myself surrounded by my volunteer youth pastors and these weren't paid people these were volunteers steve miller never got paid a dime for investing in me but they loved me my youth pastors were up there with me um, my friends from youth group this was a smaller church so there's probably 100 150 people there at this service um, and then people that had watched me grow up were there and my pastor came down and that was the moment at which my faith stuck So I'm super grateful for being asked that question. Why don't you commit to reading through the Bible in a year? You know, but be careful, it just might change your life, right? Well, I got really involved in my Christian faith at that point. I, it, I, my parents no longer had to make me go. I was there, and so I became one of these uh, persons. And in those days, there was morning and evening services on Sunday, two different sermons by the pastor. We had Wednesday night prayer meeting, Wednesday night Bible study. So I started going to the adult stuff, and I still went to youth group. So I was at church a lot and hanging around with my Christian friends in the youth group, who many of whom uh, you know, I don't see them as often, but really lifelong friends developed in that youth group, and it wasn't too much longer that we would do occasional youth services, and I remember after one youth service, and I think all I did was pray or maybe made a couple of announcements, um, my pastor, Pastor Paul George, uh, rest in peace, he died a few years back, Um, he approached me after the youth service, and he said, have you ever thought about becoming a pastor? of course I'd never thought about becoming a pastor. Who'd want to be a pastor, right? But my pastor saw something in me, and he invited me to think about that, you know, and again, I've as always, I always resist things before I accept them, but um, uh, I took that question really seriously, and by the time I was in college, uh, in my freshman year, I really did feel that God was calling me into ministry. I wasn't sure if it was gonna be a missionary because I'd been really impressed always with like Whitcliffe Bible translators and groups like that, that it had come through our church, supported those persons. Uh, but I, f- I felt a call to ministry. And so uh, in the United Methodist Church, and so literally I was a certified candidate. And some of those who are listening here in the UMC know what that means. I was certified when I was like, I was either, I think I was 19. And then Pastor George came alongside again and he goes, you know, Brian, I wanna support you would you be my associate pastor for the summer? And so the summer after my freshman year in college, uh, I was an associate pastor, still um, um, was 18 or 19, and he let me preach literally four times in the main Sunday morning worship service when I probably had absolutely no business doing that, but I literally gave my first message. Uh, actually, it was, it, was a, it was the year after my senior year, when well, after I graduated, so I was only 18. So in 1987, June 1987, I preached my first sermon. It was all because Pastor George saw something in me and said, have you ever thought about becoming a pastor? Friends, when you see somebody doing something really well, can can you invest in a soul? Because literally, I mean, somebody like me could be sitting in your congregation. I'm speaking to my pastor friends or uh, those of you who are lay people. Do you see something? in another person, a young person who may otherwise not have a sense of direction. And can you ask that kind of a question? So grateful. Well, I went, uh, finished up college, um, and I went to Asbury Seminary in the fall of uh, 1991. So this is coming up on 31 years ago. And one of the most fortunate things that I've ever done is there was multiple choices between professors to take a certain class on inductive Bible study that everybody has to take at Asbury. There were really three choices. And again, that's a story for another day. But I basically remember trying to think seriously. I was looking at all the biographies and everybody sort of seemed more or less the same. And I decided to take David Bauer. And I'm so grateful for that because David Bauer became a mentor. He's actually my dean again, uh, starting this fall as uh, our Florida campus is now officially closed. And so I've been kind of plugged back into the schools up on the Wilmore campus. And so David Bauer, my really a friend for over 31 years is my dean, but when he he met me, he invested in me and I was able to speak with him and he mentored me. And I remember after a couple of uh, classes with him, he asked me this, have you ever considered earning a PhD and, and having a, becoming a professor? Now, in a sense, I actually had. If you go back and hear my full story, when I, I've always loved studying and I've loved books. And I've been a reader of essentially adult level books since I was six or seven years old. In my earliest desire as a child that I can remember is I wanted to be a professor when I was six or seven. I didn't even know what that was. I thought it was a researcher and I was interested in like World War II and such. So I wanted to be a historian when I was just a little boy. And so when David said that to me, in a sense, he was inviting me to own the very thing that God had always put on my heart. What have I always been good at? I've always been good at learning breaking things down simply and then sharing it with others as a real sense of passion. I love to learn and I love to share. I mean, that's where my whole mission comes from. I um, I seek out, study, and embody the deepest truths about God so that I can share them with others through teaching, speaking, coaching, and writing in uh, in ways that are transformational, loving, and um Persuasive or clear. Uh, that's so. I own that, and so David took the time again, invested in me. I was just a young guy. I didn't have publications. I mean, I'm not even my own parents. My father went back later in life and got an associate's degree. But I don't even come from a college family. And here is a mentor seeing something in me and say, "Have you ever thought about getting a PhD?" I mean, it was a big deal for me to get a bachelor's degree. So grateful. Uh, And so then go and do my doctoral work um, and uh, get the privilege of becoming a professor. And again, I mimicked what I had learned from my other my colleagues when I was or my professors when I had been in seminary. But I came into a really powerful relationship early on in my seminary career. This would be I first met the person I'm going to talk about. I first heard him speak in 2004 and then I met him personally in 2005. In a conversation in January of 2005 literally changed the direction of my teaching and has led to uh, uh, most of my best work in biblical studies. I owe back to this conversation that I had with Alex McManus. He has a slightly more well known older brother named, or younger brother named Erwin McManus, but Alex. of the mosaic church from los angeles and i heard they were in speaking erwin was speaking in orlando alex was with him and one of my students happened to call and alex literally picked up the phone out in la and said hey you need to meet one of my professors and so she'd set me up with an an opportunity to connect with alex we met at a barnes and nobles and uh, in orlando and we sat down, and it, and it was so fun to meet Alex. Alex is an expert on mission and on church planning, on missional thinking. And it was so funny. First time he meets me, you know, he's a little bit older than me. Actually, he's a, 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 he's about 15 or 16 years older than me. So, um, you know, I was, I was sitting down with a wiser elder uh, uh, at the moment. He looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Brian, what business, listen to this, Brian, what business do you have teaching at a seminary since you've never planted a church? You know, I've had colleagues that say I should have just shut him down and throw it right back into his face and said that was completely inappropriate, but I'm not like that. I always take um, questions as um, out of curiosity. And so I was like, I didn't know what to say. And I was thinking, you know what, that actually makes a lot of sense. I need to have skin in the game. And, and I've had this principle really ever since then of I need to make sure that the things that I teach, that I personally embody them. And there's something about, if we're about gonna be about making disciples, if I'm gonna teach and serve students in the most powerful way that I can, if I'm gonna work with uh, pastors, if I'm gonna work with anybody, I gotta have real skin in the game. And so that was a question that challenged me to get seriously involved in church planning. And in fact, the idea was, I was already moving in that direction. That's how I met the McManuses in the first place. I was being mentored by a good friend of mine, Eric Hallett, into church planning. Uh, But that project ended up um, falling by the wayside, but Alex put it on my heart. And what's amazing is just a few months later, um, myself and a couple of friends essentially inadvertently planted a church and we went on. Uh, we have the experience of actually planning a church. Now that's a longer story, and it had it started off really well and ended up it doesn't exist. At, to, you know, at this point now. But I learned so much about preaching, about ministry, about uh, teaching, about mentoring students from that adventure in church planning that I did. And I'm super grateful that Alex challenged me that. And Alex didn't just challenge me to uh, to, to plan a church. Uh, he became a mentor and actually helped us, and we learned so many cool things. And, and the fruit of that work, ultimately, is what turned into two of my own resources. One of them is right here, Realigning with God. This is my book that talks about how do we read the Bible if we believe that mission Is central to the church. And I always use Alex's phrase, the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. And then my other book, a more popular book, Invitation, which is a missional overview of the whole scriptures that comes came really, that's the fruit of that conversation with Alex. So those are some more kind of biographical questions. And I'm gonna share a couple more, but a lot of the rest of the questions now are really deep questions that I've found from authors that I liked. Um, I have a question from a lawyer friend, from a therapist coming up, but several of these questions are, uh, are questions that I got from virtual mentors, because sometimes the people that will ask you really good questions, you'll hear them on podcasts, you might read a book and see a good question. If you find a good question, write it down. So I got involved a few years later, a few years ago, um, as I was, again, processing, growing, rerouting Following my, you know, my really difficult divorce, trying to, like I always say, put Humpty Dumpty back together, my own my own soul, and raise my kids. So I went on this personal spiritual journey that led to me doing the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. A lot of the story is in my Centering Prayer book, uh, but one of the authors that I found really helpful is I was trying to break down the changes that had happened in me and open myself up for more growth, is actually a secular author named James Hollis. He's got dozens of books, he's a psychotherapist, <laughs> but one of the great questions that he asks when he's talking about how do you navigate a midlife, and that's when my first marriage blew up, right? It was right in my early 40s. I was at this pivotal moment, Again, that's a longer story, but I had to navigate this massive shift right in the middle of my life, and Hollis just has a question that I love. It's this, who are you apart from your achievements and the roles you've played? Who are you apart from your achievements and the roles you've played? Right, and for a doer like me, an achiever, um, the answer was like, well, not not much. Right, in our heads, we know what the answer is, and I knew what it was. Who am I? I'm a person loved by God. But, But... I lived like I was a person who had to earn love, who always had to achieve, who had to do the next thing, who always needed to be busy, who had to, again, earn love because I just wasn't good enough the way I was. But that's a lie. But that Hollis question puts that on the front front burner. Who are you really? Who are you apart from your achievements and the roles you've played? Well, my daughter helped me out a lot through that whole phase too one day we're driving home from work. I'd been in meetings all day. I was fried, and I was just frustrated. The traffic was really slow, and I just remember my daughter could just tell I was stewing. I'm driving there, and and then she just turned in the car and said uh, innocently, Dad, why do you work so much? You know, it was a little snarky that day. My or loving daughter just asking an innocent question so immediately I just said well, I work so much so I can buy you and all you and your sister all the stuff that you think you need lie and then I'm like well God wants me to work all the time I'm like that's not true lie so I went through this whole list a lot of this was in my in my mind then I realized you know like you know why I work so much and I'm so grateful my daughter asked me this it's it's back to that same as the before it's like I don't think I'm good enough and my whole identity is, is, is created by being useful and getting stuff done. And I'm a workhorse. That's my identity. I'm a, I'm a donkey. I'm a workhorse. And that was a life-changing question because I thought, you know what, I, I don't want to be that. A friend now, Mark Dunwood, he always talks about he doesn't want to be busy. But I I sense that when I when Mikhail asked me that question, it's been probably six years ago now. Why do you work so much? Yeah, I work so much because I'm proven that I'm worthy of love. But friends, that's a lie. We're all worthy of love. That was a life-changing question. So grateful for that. And as as I've grown, I've learned then to try to tap into that person that I was created to be. And so one of the things that I love to do, and if you want a way to kind of hack yourself, especially if you have any level of self-loathing or you don't feel like you're good enough or you judge yourself for whatever reasons that you're not good enough or you're not enough or uh, get a picture of yourself from when you're a little kid. Like I have this picture of myself when I'm in kindergarten and I call that little guy Little Bry. He's got I got a little badge on. My dad was a firefighter, so I have like my little plastic fire chief badge. And I'm I'm just there, and I just have a little pleasant look on my face. And so, what, what I've learned, I got this from one of my coaches, that I just take the picture. And this will sound hokey, but this can be life changing. And is I'll just spend some time looking at my little picture of myself, and I close my eyes, and I just say, What's Little Bry really need? Cause the truth is, friends, you know, you get to picture yourself, whoever that cute little kid that you were, however long ago you were a cute little kid, that person still lives inside of you. And you would never be mean or even think an ill thought about that cute little kid or any other little kid. And so... That's a reminder you know what's little bri need how does big bri need to honor little bri and, and you know what the answer is always the same Do you know what little bri really needs he needs loved and so i've learned as i've gotten older to open myself up willing to be a little bit more vulnerable a little bit more transparent so that i can receive more and more of god's love it's one of the reasons i love contemplative practices and i've also noticed is I've opened up myself more and more to God's love and have realized how much God loves me. That allows me then to share love with other people, to bless and serve, and then also let other people bless and serve me. You know, it all started with what's little Brian need. I also struggled after the divorce and even after I was remarried with my sense of whether or not I'm a good dad. struggle with that. It's like I had to work a lot because I was trying to pay off bills. I was trying to um, work really hard on a blended family. And I just felt like a really bad father no matter what I did. And then I heard some teaching on unconscious rules. And the the trainer, I've heard this from a couple of different uh, persons. I've heard it from Tony Robbins. Uh, uh, I've heard it from uh, implied in writers like Gay Hendricks, um, Rich Lidfin, but they all kind of want you to get to the point where can you identify what has to be true for you to feel whatever. And so like I ask myself, what has to be true for me to feel like I'm a good father? And when I asked myself that question, what what has to be true for me to feel like a good father? Because again, everybody's telling me I'm a great dad. I just don't feel like it. And then I realized, you know, listen to this, here's where my rules for being for feeling like a good father. I need to work all the time so I can provide for my kids. And I need to be fully present with them at all times. And as soon as I said that to myself, you know, I thought, you know what? I'm trying to be both my mom and my dad simultaneously to my kids because my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she was always essentially there for my brother and myself when we needed her, always. And then my dad, he always worked a couple of extra jobs to make sure we had a little extra money and that we were resourced. And then he was present a lot. He coached our soccer teams. He built soapbox derbies. We went fishing. We went hiking. So my parents were really invested. But here I was... I thought I had to be both my mom and my dad who were extraordinary as individuals. I tried to be both of them, and the very fact that that's impossible made me feel like I was a bad father. But the second I asked that rules conversation, I realized, okay, wait a second. I've set myself up to never be satisfied with my relationship being a father. And so I basically then wrote some new rules for what a good father is. So think about that. What are your rules? What has to be true for you to feel blank. You put successful, loved, good mother, a good father, a good friend, to feel intelligent, all, anything. But write down, find out what your rules are. And if they don't serve you, change it. Change them. I've heard pastors say, um, if I was a good pastor, everybody would like me. Well, I immediately said to the, to the person, well, I guess you're never going to be a good pastor then. because <laughs> no There's never going to be a time when everybody likes you. It just doesn't work that way, right? So what are your rules? Life-changing. I had a lawyer friend that taught me a valuable lesson about questions, and he said, make sure you listen really carefully to the question if you ever get asked one, and this is like, this was like legal advice he was giving me, but I've, I've always remembered this, you know, like his trick question what is, was he asked me one day, Brian, uh, do you know what time it is? And he just hit me out of the blue, and so I remember immediately popping up my wrist, and he goes, I didn't ask you to check your watch. I asked you, do you know what time it is? So the answer was either yes or no. It wasn't look at my watch or go find out. And I've always kind of remembered that, right? So you want to make sure that we listen super carefully when somebody does ask us a question so we can communicate clearly what the person actually wants to know, not what we think they want to know, right? Do you know what time it is? No, I don't. I don't got a watch right in front of me right now but I can check if you'd like. Would you like me to find out what time it is? And then they can say yes or no, right? A question I love to ask my soccer team, and I ask myself this too, is uh, I have a, 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 a desire to continue to grow and experience transformation. And the only way that you can get better at anything that you do Is to make sure there's always a little bit of a challenge in your life, and so one of the questions I asked myself, and then I brought this into my relationship, as into my coaching when I was a soccer coach for my uh, some of my daughter's teams, uh, was this: Where's the glory in that? Right, and let me just give you an example from soccer. You know, in soccer, everybody always wants to score a bunch of goals, right? It's like the whole thing. And, and for me, for soccer is more of a beautiful sport where it's about uh, helping a team to, to get better so that it can actually compete with and hopefully, at some point, beat better teams. But the temptation that we have, especially in American sports, because mom and dad always want to see the kids winning, is you want to end up playing really bad teams and then, you yeah, you score a bunch of goals. So like when we would train, I coached a girls team, we would only scrimmage boys teams. Because again, not making up stereotypes or whatever, but that was a bigger challenge for my girls teams than just trying to play um, other girls teams because boys tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Again, these are stereotypes. A little bit quicker sometimes And so if my girls could compete against boys, they would have no trouble competing against all girls' teams. And again, I hope that doesn't sound inappropriate here in 2022. And and, and they would complain about it. And then it's like, hey, we're a competitive travel team. We're going to play really hard teams. So there's no glory in it for us if we go play some little rec team from, say, the YMCA and just score 10, 12 goals against them because they're not very good. We need to play quality opponents so that we get a challenge, so that we can get better, right? So I was always disappointed if we played a team, even for in our league, and we would win by you know five, six, seven, eight, nothing. That was a waste of even playing the game. I wanted us to be on the verge of losing. Those were the games that I loved the most. Games that we had to work hard to even win by a goal. That's where we're making progress. And occasionally it was good for us to get whipped once in a while just because that showed us how we needed to up the level. So, you know, where's the glory in that? Make sure you always have a challenge, right? If it's too easy, let somebody else do it. In the same way, like as as for myself now, you know, if I'm the smartest person in a room, I'm in the wrong room. I want to be the guy that that needs to ask questions and to grow. So I've always tried to surround myself with people that are a little further down the path than I am because, you know, where's the glory? Where's the glory in always being the smartest one or uh, the most knowledgeable or the best athlete? You know, get into a place where you have to grow and stretch a little bit. That's what makes life fun question I got from podcaster and author Tim Ferriss. I just love this question. What would it, what would this be like if it were easy? Because sometimes we overcomplicate things, right? We have a big project. uh, We have a big goal and we just think, oh, this is, I just got to grind this thing out. I got to be like syphysis and just push the rock up the hill. But one of those questions I love to ask is like, what would this be like if it were easy? Because sometimes we assume it's going to be hard. And if you think something's going to be hard, it usually is. But trick yourself and say, what would this be like if it were easy? And you'd be surprised on how your mindset will shift sometimes. I'm not saying really hard things you, you, you don't have to work for. them. But that question, what would this be like if it were easy, can often open up additional pathways, give you more confidence. And you can see maybe shortcuts, hacks, different tactics that allow you to get the hard thing a little bit easier and believe me, when you do that it turns down the anxiety and stress that we do get when we put ourselves into these stretch situations all right just two more questions so we're almost done here uh, and again these are all just examples i'm going to come back with the challenge here in a couple of minutes Uh my therapist and again i had a trance uh, some really deep transformation letting go of some trauma over the last uh, really since last december and it, and it's ironic again i i did a big stretch when i published the centering prayer book that was outside of my discipline and i put a lot of personal stuff about my own personal pain in this book and in some ways that that was a little embarrassing like now everybody's reading about some of my struggles i went really public for the first time about my struggles after i'd gotten divorced and i had done a lot of podcast interviews and ironically by telling my own story so many times out loud i just kind of re-traumatized myself so interesting and so i did some really deep work and i found a fantastic uh, therapist his name's tyler marsh and uh I totally recommend him if you're in the Orlando area and need a, a really good, uh, good therapist. But one of the questions that he asked me that I will say, as I pondered it deeply, this I didn't sh- make this shift the second he asked it, but I wrote it down and, re- and literally meditated on it for, for a while and sat in silence around it. it was simply this. He goes, Brian, what would it feel like to live as though you were enough? You know, we're back to this stuff that I talked about earlier. That you don't have to prove anything. That you're good enough. You do enough, and that there is enough. What would that feel like to live that way? You know, I love that question. I mean, that was worth whatever I ended up paying my my uh, my therapist just for that one question. That's the power of a question. Because at a certain point, when I was literally literally doing really in silence, sitting there pondering that question before the Lord. I just got the word, uh, do you know what it would look like to live as though you were enough? And I felt like God was saying, enough already, Brian. You're enough. Get after it. And those of you who follow me on social media know that almost every week I put a picture of a trail down. And I always just say, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Trust, surrender, walk the path what's the path? So whatever's in front of you that day. Like Micah 6.8 says, um, what's the Lord require? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. My mentor Bob Tuttle always said the key to life, show up, pay attention, know that God's got way more invested in this than you do. And because of that question, I was able to get that into my heart. And I have to say, my life's been changed over the last six or seven months, and it's stuck. I, I'm showing up differently. I feel lighter. I feel more loving, and, and I feel enough. And that's why I've been doing some of many solo casts I'm doing. So I'm trying to actually reverse hack how I got to the places where I just was able to open myself up to even more of God's grace. So I might even ask you that. How would, what would it feel like for you to live, do your work, your ministry, your relationships as though you were already enough. Then last question. This is from strategic coach Dan Sullivan. And I'm really, he only coaches very wealthy entrepreneurs, but he has lots of free stuff. So I always enjoy listening and reading Dan Sullivan's books, listening to him on podcasts and videos. But one of his questions, and he calls it basically the Dan Sullivan question. And it goes this way, and I just love it because it, it invites us to imagine a future from the future looking back to today. And I ask myself this consistently. And Dan Sol- the Dan Solvent question is basically this Imagine that we don't speak again for three years from today. What would have to have happened or be in process for you to feel happy and satisfied with your progress? great question right let me read that again so if you're listening to me whatever today is go out three years so imagine that we don't speak again for three years from right now what would have to have happened or to be in process for you to feel happy and satisfied with your progress a question like that and you can put any time frame invites us to dream and to commit to those big things that God's putting on our hearts and then focus on you know, what would be in my control towards getting that goal, that if I put these in process three years from now, I'm gonna be super satisfied with my progress. You know, for me, it's about blessing and serving others. It's about writing, creating good content showing up and loving my uh, my children and my my wife astrid those are the things that matter to me and those and that's what would that's going to look like for me to feel really happy and satisfied with my progress it's not somebody else's game it's 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 decide what your game is what is it that god's put on your heart and what would be those baby steps that if you were in process three years from now you'd feel really good about your life friends those are the questions that have changed and shaped my life, you know, basically going back to about the age of um, uh, 15, all the way up until up till 53. What are the questions that have shaped your growth? And I'll even ask this: Who do you have in your life that continues to ask you good questions? You know, one of the privileges and one of the reasons I've even shifted a lot of my own ministry work. To coaching, and I work with pastors primarily, but I also work with spiritually minded leaders, entrepreneurs, um, lay persons that are into, that that want to do deep spiritual formation. One of the uh, the heart of of really what deep dive spirituality is is asking really good questions. Those of you who listen to my interviews, I try to honor my guests by asking them really good questions. So who do you have in your life that asks you good questions? What are your sources for questions? I invite you to go back and think through kind of what would be your biography. I've kind of told my story by the questions that I've tried to answer over the course of my life. What would that look like for you? you'd love to have a conversation with me, a coaching conversation, you can always reach out, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. If you'd be interested in perhaps even considering a coaching relationship, you can check out uh, deepdivespirituality.com. Um, if you're interested in the pastors' uh, coaching groups that I do or one-on-one, or you can just check out Brian Russell, PhD, for all the different types of coaching that I do. It'd be a real privilege to serve you. So grateful to have you as a listener. And until next time, I'm going to use the words of Bob Tuttle, show up, pay attention. God's got way more invested in this than you do.